Father, we give You thanks for Your grace to us. You shower us with good gifts and with new mercies each morning, especially on the morning of the Lord's Day when You summon us into Your presence and we behold Your glory in Word, sacrament, and the faces of our fellow Christians. We thank You for sending Your Son into the world to seek us out as sinners and to save us. Your Son, the Word made flesh, God manifested in the flesh, who came to die for us and for our sins and to make us new through His resurrection. O Father, fill us with hope and faith and love today that we may know You, that we may grow in wisdom and holiness, that we may worship You in reverent fear, that we may receive Your gifts and render You praise. This is our prayer to You, O Heavenly Father, through Your Son and by Your Holy Spirit, one God in three persons forever and ever. Amen. Our lesson of the day is from the book of Proverbs, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel to understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. My son, hear the instruction of your father, and do not forsake the law of your mother, for they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we do ask that You, as our Heavenly Father, would impart wisdom to us this day, that we might live in accord with Your design for human life, all to Your glory. This we pray through the name of Your Son, the King, Christ Jesus. Amen. going to be preaching from the book of Proverbs over the next few weeks, but I don't want you to think of this as a break to our series on the Gospel of Mark. Don't think of this as an interruption uh, to the Gospel of Mark. Think of this as a rather fitting detour as we work our way through Mark's Gospel, uh, a fitting rabbit trail to go down as we work our way through Mark. Uh, Mark has a lot of connections with the Bible's wisdom literature. I've already pointed out some of those uh, as we've been going through uh, the Gospel of Mark. For example, in Mark, he constantly refers to Jesus as being on the way. uh, On the way. And uh, Proverbs is all about the way. It's about the way of wisdom versus the way of folly. There's this antithesis between these two ways in the book of Proverbs. In the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus embodying what it means to travel the way of wisdom. Further, in Mark's Gospel, Jesus speaks in riddle-like parables. He speaks in enigmas, mysteries that require wisdom to understand. Even His miracles are 
parables uh, of a sort that only the wise can really grasp and understand. Proverbs is a book full of riddles and puzzles and paradoxes that don't yield their meaning right away. They require contemplation and sustained reflection and meditation. Just like Mark. Most importantly, Mark presents Jesus to us as the ultimate wise man, as the sage of sages. Mark presents Jesus to us as the embodiment of God's wisdom. The reason I say that is that Mark especially presents Jesus as a new David, a new Davidic king, a king who rules through wisdom because he is a king who rules through serving. The Bible's wisdom literature looks like Proverbs. Uh, The Bible's wisdom literature is royal literature. It's written by kings and for kings. It's given to train us in how to rule wisely. See, all of us, all of us as disciples of Jesus are kings in training. And what kings need more than anything is wisdom. Mark's Gospel shows us the ultimate kingly wisdom is found in the cleverness of the cross. The cross is the wisdom of God. It is kingly wisdom. The wisdom of the servant king. Wisdom is found in dying to self. But Proverbs shows us in all kinds of practical ways what that looks like. Uh, the Old Testament, Old Testament wisdom literature, wisdom literature in the Bible, consists in five books. There's the book of Job, which is wisdom for the suffering. There's the book of Psalms, which is wisdom for worship. There's the book of Proverbs, which we're looking at today, which is wisdom for the young. There's the book of Ecclesiastes, which is wisdom for the old. And there's the book of Song of Solomon, which is wisdom for marriage. So in the Bible's wisdom literature, you have wisdom for every area of life, every stage of life. You have five books of wisdom corresponding to the five books of the law, the five books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Five books of the law, five books of wisdom. Not only that, but if you look carefully at the structure of Proverbs, you find that it has ten basic sections. And of course, the law is summarized in the ten words or the ten commandments. So again, there's this correspondence between the ten sections of Proverbs and the ten commandments of the law. Wisdom flows out of the law. But we can also say wisdom builds on the law and indeed goes beyond the law. Consider what wisdom is. What is wisdom? Wisdom begins with knowledge, but it's certainly more than just knowledge. There are many people who have knowledge, but they lack wisdom. Wisdom is discernment. It is insight into the nature of things. Uh, Wisdom, in the most basic level, means skill. It might be skill in war, or skill in family life, or skill in music, or skill in ruling, or skill in decision-making. Wisdom is what you get. Wisdom is what happens when you obey what you know, when you put into practice what you know over time. You begin to accumulate wisdom. Wisdom means understanding and living in accord with God's design for human life. It means going with the grain, 
of God's universe. If you go against the grain of God's universe, you get splinters and it hurts. And Proverbs warns about that in all kinds of ways. But when you live wisely, there is a fit between your life and how God made the universe to work. There's a congruence between how you're living and how God designed you to live. Wisdom, we could say, is the art of living well. It's the skill of living according to God's design. Now, the book of James, we read from a piece of it this morning. James says when we need wisdom, we should ask for it. Think about this. What kinds of situations require wisdom? When do you find yourself asking for wisdom? It's usually when you have a decision to make and it's not clear which way you should go. It's not clear cut which alternative you should choose. Perhaps it helps to think of wisdom in relation to law. God has given us His law, which clearly spells out right from wrong. And in situations addressed by the law, we know exactly what we should do. It's all black and white. There's no gray area with the law. If you're contemplating whether or not to murder somebody, the law makes that an easy decision. It says, thou shalt not murder. If you're contemplating whether or not you should steal... The law makes that an easy decision. It says, thou shalt not steal. It simply says, stealing is wrong. Questions about issues addressed by the law are easy. At least knowing what we should do is easy. But what do you do when you're confronted with an issue or with a decision that you have to make and it's not clearly addressed by the law? I said that wisdom builds on the law and goes beyond the law. Think about this in terms of the history of Israel, God's old covenant people, Israel. Which came first? The giving of the law or the giving of the wisdom literature? The law books or the wisdom books? The law comes first. The law is given through Moses. And the law is given to be basic training for God's people in their infancy. Galatians 3, reflecting on this history, even calls the law a pedagogue, which is just a fancy term for babysitter, child caretaker, something like that. That's what the law is all about. That's the function of the law, to give Israel her first principles in right and wrong, her first lessons, her elementary lessons in right and wrong, how to live as God's people. The main leaders in Israel during the time of the law during this period of history were the priests. The priests were the main leaders in Israel under the law. And the law of Moses has very extensive rules and regulations for priests. So, for example, the law tells priests what to eat. If a priest went out to a restaurant, he doesn't have to decide whether to get the, the shell, shellfish or you know, the bacon. Because those, things, that, that, those questions are already answered by the law. Your diet, your, your menu is already determined by the law. What you would wear is determined by the law. If you're a priest, there are certain vestments for you to wear. That's all prescribed in great detail. There's no question there what you should wear. Where you would live, what your job would be, how you would do that job. It's all spelled out in great detail in the law. If you were a priest, your life was pretty well mapped out for you. It's like you were a child. You know, if you think about a one-year-old, a one-year-old doesn't decide what he's going to eat. 
each day or what clothes he's going to wear. His parents make all those decisions for him. He's under law. He's under the law of his parents. Well, in a way, that's how the priestly phase of Israel's history was. It was all about the law. But later in Israel's history, they moved from being a priestly nation to being a kingly nation. Israel became a kingdom. God gave the nation kings like David and Solomon. And it's in this kingly period of Israel's history that the wisdom literature begins to appear. David writes most of the Psalms. Solomon puts together uh, most of the rest of the wisdom literature. Israel gets a kingdom because the people of God have matured. Oh sure, they're still to live by the law, but kings need more than the law. They need wisdom. Why is that? Because kings, unlike priests, face situations not addressed by the law. Wisdom presupposes the law. It builds on the law, but it goes beyond the law to reach into areas of life where the law does not. We read from 1 Kings chapter 3 this morning. I think this is the perfect example of this. And indeed, it's why this story falls where it does in the book of Kings. In the beginning of that chapter, 1 Kings 3, which we did not read, God comes to Solomon, the newly crowned king of Israel, and He says, whatever you ask, I will give you. God comes to Solomon and says, I will grant you one wish, whatever you want. And Solomon, knowing that as a king, what he needs most is wisdom, he rightly asks for wisdom. What's the very next thing that happens? We read this story this morning. You've got two women fighting over one baby. Each new mother accusing the other of killing her own baby and replacing it with the living baby. And Solomon is called upon to make a judgment. Now, is there a law that you could go to in Exodus or Leviticus or Deuteronomy that would settle that kind of case? How is Solomon to discern the truth here? The law never addressed this kind of situation. Oh, certainly the law could tell you that killing's wrong or that one of the women is a thief. But it cannot tell you how to make a judgment. It cannot tell you how to figure out which one is lying, which one is telling the truth. The law is insufficient in that sense. What Solomon needs is not just law. What he needs is wisdom. And so he ingeniously gets a sword to cut the baby in half. Priests use swords to kill animals. Kings use swords to kill people. But Solomon knew when he brought this sword out and threatened to kill the baby, the true mother would reveal herself. He had understanding. He had insight into the way things are. The way relationships work. How people work. What makes people tick and and think and act the way they do. And so he was able to solve this problem. And when the people heard about it, they were amazed at the wisdom God had given to Solomon. So you may find through the course of your life, God putting you in situations where you really just don't know what to do. You don't know what to do next. God does that precisely so you will see your need for wisdom. So you can cry out for wisdom, so God can grant you wisdom, and so you can mature into a kingly ruler. Law is for priests, 
in a priestly phase of life. But when you become a king, when you move into the kingly phase of life where you have to make decisions for yourself and decisions that will impact others, and when you have to deal with issues that aren't clearly spelled out in the law, what you need is wisdom. Many of your biggest decisions in life are not law decisions, but wisdom decisions. What career path should I take? Which job is the right one for me? Who should I marry? Oh sure, the law can tell you you must marry in the Lord. It must be another believer. But let's face it, that still leaves a lot of candidates. How do you know that this would be a good spouse for you? It's not a law issue. It's a wisdom issue. Where am I going to live? Should I live in this city or that? Should I buy this house or rent that apartment? Should I speak in this situation or hold my tongue? And if I do speak, should I speak firmly or softly? These are issues the law doesn't answer. They require wisdom. See, when you have internalized the law as a priest, you can begin to live as a king, making decisions about these kinds of issues. See, wisdom and dominion go together. Wisdom allows us to rule over our own lives, certainly, but it also allows us to rule over that piece of the creation or that piece of the human community that God has entrusted to us. To sum it up, we could say wisdom is maturity. It's mature rule. It's maturity and taking responsibility. Wisdom means you have depth as a person. You're not just skimming over the surface of the water, say like a jet ski, and you can have a lot of fun you know, skimming along the surface of the waters. But wisdom means you're more, more like a scuba diver going down deep, seeing what's really underneath things, seeing what's down deep in reality. Wisdom means you've become a deep person, a person whose views carry weight you're now worth listening to because you have something worthwhile to say through your accumulated, obedient experience. You're now able to make mature judgments. You're able to make mature decisions. You're able to rule in a mature way. So how do we acquire wisdom? The book of Proverbs shows us. In the book of Proverbs, what we have is a father who is imparting wisdom to his son. And it's not just any father. It's a king. That's how Solomon identifies himself at the very beginning. And so it's not just any son who's on the receiving end of this instruction. It's the prince. This boy receiving the book of Proverbs is a king in training. So Proverbs is training in wisdom so that the son can rule well when the kingdom is entrusted to him. Verse 1 tells us these are the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David. His father passed wisdom along to him, and he's the king in Israel, which means his son is the king in waiting. And then in verse 8, he says, my son, hear the instruction of your father. Now, in verses 2 through 7, sandwiched between those references to the, this father son relationship, sandwiched in between in verses 2 through 7, what you really have is the preamble to the book of Proverbs. Really, the purpose of the book, which we see very clearly, is to impart wisdom and instruction. But I want you to notice something very critical here. 
The introduction to this book tells you something very important about where wisdom is found, how it is acquired. James 1 talks about prayer. Ask the Lord for wisdom and He will grant it. But how does God answer that cry for wisdom? How does God answer that prayer for wisdom? Does God zap people with a wisdom lightning bolt from beyond the wild blue yonder? Just zap people with wisdom. So you ask God and now instantaneously you've got wisdom. Certainly God could do that. But ordinarily that's not how God communicates His wisdom. Ordinarily wisdom is passed along in the context of relationships. Relationships where there is love and trust. See, God is the source of all wisdom. God possesses all wisdom. But He stores His wisdom in other people. And the way you tap into that wisdom, the way you acquire that wisdom is by listening to the wise. We become wise through listening to the wise and what they have to share with us. The pursuit of wisdom is inherently relational. It's not an isolated, individualistic kind of pursuit. Wisdom is gained in community. It's gained in family. The son is not told to go off and seek wisdom on his own. He must receive it from those who already possess it. In fact, one of the most famous Proverbs, Proverbs 11.4 says there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. God's wisdom resides in God's people. And that's how you tap into it. The best way to become wise is to hang around the wise and soak in their wisdom and imitate their wise example. You will not become wise if you will not listen to others. Especially, you will not become wise if you will not respect the authority figures God has put into your life. See, what is the book of Proverbs? Largely, it's a series of lectures from a father to his son. Let me talk to you kids here for just a minute, especially you teenagers, but even you younger kids. How do you feel about getting lectured by your parents? Most kids don't like it. But you need to understand, when, when you feel like you're being lectured by your parents, that is the book of Proverbs in action. And if your parents don't lecture you, if they don't teach you, they don't sit down and have those talks with you, then your parents are guilty of parental malpractice. It means they're bad parents. So maybe you need to go and say, hey, mom, dad, I need you to lecture me more. I need more of those talks. I need you to impart more of your wisdom to me. It is your parents' job to impart wisdom to you, to teach you wisdom. It's your job to listen. C.S. Lewis once said, the next best thing to being wise oneself is to live in a circle of those who are. But let me paraphrase it to bring it a little bit more closely to how Proverbs actually works. The next best thing to being wise yourself is having parents who are wise who will share that wisdom with you, who are seeking to impart that wisdom to you. Look at Proverbs 1.8 again. My son, hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother. It's a teenage boy being told to listen to his mother. 
to listen to the law, or actually it's the word Torah, the Torah of your mother. You know, you've heard of Moses, the law of Moses, the Torah of Moses. Well, this is mom's Torah, mom's law, and the son is being told to heed it because it is wisdom. Now, the fact that the son here is being told to listen to his mom as well as his dad, this was truly revolutionary in the ancient world. Scripture teaches mom and dad together impart wisdom to children. Moms and dads often see things differently, don't they? Mom's got her perspective. Dad's got his perspective. You've got the masculine perspective, the feminine perspective, the fatherly perspective, the motherly perspective. But each of those perspectives on reality, while they're different in all kinds of ways, they're complementary. They're equally important. Dad's got masculine, fatherly wisdom to share. Mom has maternal, feminine wisdom to share. Kids need both. Indeed, we all need both. A man and a woman complement one another and complete one another within the covenant of marriage. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, that's true. But it's also true in parenting. The wise son, if he's going to become wise, he must listen to his father and to his mother. In the ancient world, generally speaking, the reason I say this is revolutionary, to say that mom must be listened to as well, or as the fifth commandment says, mom must be honored as well as father. In the ancient world, the masculine perspective was considered to be intrinsically better. In our postmodern world, I would say the feminine perspective is generally regarded as intrinsically What Proverbs is saying here is, no, they are, yes, distinct from one another, different in various ways, different perspectives on reality, but they are equally valid and neither is complete without the other. And so the son needs both if he's going to become wise. Now look at what Solomon, Solomon says about the purpose of this book, what he's aiming at, how he describes it in Verses 2 through 7. Again, this is really the prologue of the book. Verse 2, he says, The purpose is that the son might know wisdom and instruction, that he might have understanding. These are rich and deep words. You know, the first time the word wisdom is used in Scripture is not here in Proverbs, it's actually back in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, it is used to describe Bezalel who made the vestments and furniture for the tabernacle, these beautiful works of art, this wonderful craftsmanship, he's said to have a spirit of wisdom because he knows how to take raw material in the creation and transform it into something beautiful and glorious. And I think that's actually really helpful for understanding what wisdom is. What is wisdom? It's a practical skill that allows you to do the work God has called you to do with excellence and beauty. It's mastery of the craft God has assigned to you. It's doing what is fitting, leading to a beautiful life, building what is beautiful. The law tells you what is right and true. Wisdom tells you what is good and beautiful. The law deals with rules. Wisdom deals with relationships. The law deals with what is right. Wisdom 
deals with what is fitting. See, the wise person lives a beautiful life. He's building a life that is, that is beautiful, that is attractive, that is glorious. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is actually described most often as a beautiful woman. And lady wisdom throughout the book is contrasted with the harlot folly, who's very seductive in all kinds of ways, but she doesn't have the beauty and the depth that lady wisdom has. Wisdom is beautiful. It is glorious. In fact, Proverbs 1.8-1.9 describes wisdom as jewelry, like a crown put on one's head or chains about one's neck. It's this beautiful medallion, this beautiful crown. Wisdom is living artfully. It's living a beautiful life. Wisdom leads to glory. Think again of Bezalel. His skill, his craftsmanship. A furniture maker displays wisdom in his expert craftsmanship, building a beautiful and solid piece of furniture. A musician displays wisdom in making beautiful sounds. A father displays wisdom in producing well-trained children. The book of Jeremiah talks about goldsmiths having wisdom in the beautiful metallic creations they create. The book of Psalms talks about the wisdom of the sailors who can use the tides and the winds to navigate their ships, to get where they want to go. There is an art to everything. Wisdom finds it, discovers it, masters it. That's what wisdom is. Living with skill. Living with mastery, with beauty. It's living a well-crafted, harmonious life. Wisdom means having a game plan for life and for the situations you face so that you can navigate them skillfully in a way that brings glory to God. Solomon speaks here not only of wisdom, but also of instruction. Instruction throughout the book of Proverbs is especially corrective. That is, it consists in chastening and reproof and discipline. And what we see here throughout the book of Proverbs is that in order for the son to become wise, he must be humble enough to receive rebuke. If you will not receive rebuke and correction, you cannot become wise. See, what makes the fool the fool is that he always thinks he's right. He's wise in his own eyes. What allows the simple man to grow into a wise man is he receives instruction and correction. Partly because that instruction helps you to come to understand the connection, the link between actions and consequences. How this, there's this sowing and reaping principle built into God's universe. The instruction, the correction might be physical, it might be verbal, it might be through observing the example of another. But the truth is, we always need correction to some degree because we're still sinners. And as long as there is sin in our life, there is room for correction. Then in verses 3 and 4, Solomon goes on to talk about justice, judgment, and equity. That's an interesting choice of terms. We usually think of terms like justice and equity. We, We typically use those terms in the political realm. 
They're terms that have to do with, with, with public life, with society as a whole. And really, you could say that's a big part of what's going on here. These are royal virtues produced by kingly wisdom. They have to do with ruling well. Wisdom is not just for private matters, but also for public, social matters. So Solomon speaks here of justice. Justice describes a pattern of life that reflects God's own covenant faithfulness, a life of loyalty and love. It would mean knowing how to render judgment in any particular case. It would mean knowing when to be firm and when to be tender. He speaks here of judgment that has to do with discernment and decision making. You know, in the book of Proverbs, it's interesting. Wisdom cries out in the city gates, the most public venue there was in an ancient civilization. Why is wisdom crying out in the city gates, the city squares? Because wisdom is needed to guide the practicalities of civic and economic life. Wisdom is essential to communal peace. And this is true at every level. Parents, if you want to have a peaceful family life, you need wisdom to help the members of your family get along. If a ruler wants to have a peaceful society, He's got to have wisdom to help the members of the community get along with one another and live in a harmonious way. When you grow in wisdom, what you find is God giving you more and more opportunities to make decisions that impact other people. You find God entrusting you with decisions that affect other people, whether it's in your family or in a business situation or in a political environment. Wisdom is needed, not just for private life, certainly there, but also for public life. It means that if God's people, if God's people have wisdom, if we know the book of Proverbs and the other books of the biblical wisdom literature, we should be the ones who have workable solutions to the seemingly insolvable political problems that plague our culture. We should be the ones with answers. Solomon speaks of justice. He speaks of judgment. He goes on to speak of equity. Equity is the opposite of partiality. It means speaking and acting and rendering decisions that manifest justice, that harmonize the members of a community. And what we need to see here is that equity and justice flow out of wisdom. Equity means you see past appearances to the reality of things. Now see, verses 2 and 3 here really focus on the young receiving wisdom. Verse 4, there's this subtle shift that takes place. Now it focuses on the teacher's perspective, giving wisdom. See, the young man needs the book of Proverbs so he can grow in wisdom, but the old need Proverbs so they can impart wisdom. Sadly, many grow old without growing wise. And so they end up with nothing to offer the young that is really of any use. We come to verse 7, which is really the theme verse, I would say, for this whole book, but really for all of the Bible's wisdom literature. Solomon tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That is a common theme throughout Proverbs. It's a common theme throughout all of the wisdom literature. You'll find the same kind of statement made in Psalms and in Job and in Ecclesiastes. What does it mean? What does it mean to fear the Lord? 
You used to hear that phrase a lot. People would talk about a God-fearing man. And I think the fact that that kind of language, that kind of description of someone has fallen out of our culture's vocabulary is a really troubling sign. But we need to be careful how we understand this. I remember growing up and hearing in Bible studies, the fear of the Lord doesn't mean you're supposed to be afraid of God. But you know, the more I read the Scriptures, the more I realized, no, I think it does mean you need to be afraid of God. The fear of the Lord is being afraid of the Lord in a certain sense. It certainly includes that. The fear of the Lord means being afraid of Him because of who He is and what He can do to you. It means you understand our God is a consuming fire and God is terrifying to you outside of Christ. It means there's no hope for the sinner outside of Christ. God is terrifying outside of Christ. The fear of God means you have reckoned with who God is. With His power, with His holiness, with His righteousness, with His greatness. It means you are struck by the Godness of God. You are in awe of who God is. God is great and you see your littleness, your nothingness before Him. To fear God means He has weight. He is the weightiest thing of all in your life. He's central to your life. He's foundational to your life. You start building your worldview and building your life around Him and upon Him as your foundation. To fear God means that your greatest fear is disappointing God. Not just because you're afraid of breaking God's rules, but because you're afraid of breaking God's heart. And I know that sounds kind of corny and sentimental. But it's really true because it means you come to see sin not just as violating a moral standard, not just as violating rules, but violating a relationship. A relationship with one who loves you dearly as your father and who has adopted you and made you his own son. To fear God means... Disappointing God is your greatest fear of all. But you know what? When you fear God in this way, all your other fears disappear. The fear of God swallows up all your other fears and drives them away. It makes you a fearless person. To fear God means you are fearless. The fear of God is the graveyard of all your other fears. Now, fearing God doesn't mean, and this is where I think the misunderstanding could come in, it doesn't mean you grovel before Him. It doesn't mean you can't be assured of His love and forgiveness. Psalm 130, verse 4 says, There is forgiveness with you, Lord, that you may be feared. Forgiveness leads to fear. There's a certain kind of fear, fear of punishment, that it drives away. But to know that our sins are forgiven and forgiven through the death of Christ, the death of God's own Son, ought to make you fearful before God because you see His greatness. You see His glory. His fatherly love produces fear in you. See, the kind of fear that Proverbs is describing here is a filial fear. It's a kind of childlike wonder at who God is combined with an assurance of His fatherly love and faith. In other words, as one commentator has pointed out, fear of God is really a kind of synonym for faith. This fear of God, this faith 
in God is what makes us wise. It is the beginning of wisdom. Because this fear of God puts us in a posture of humility before God so we can begin to receive the wisdom He offers us. So do you want to be wise? Do you want to reflect the truth, beauty, and goodness through your life into the world around you? Do you want to live a skillful, masterful, well-crafted life? Do you want to fulfill God's design for humanity? Do you want to go with the grain of God's design for the cosmos? Then get wisdom. Get wisdom by fearing God and by putting your faith in Him. Walk in His ways. Know that true wisdom flows out of your relationship with the Lord. You are His Son. He is your heavenly Father. And He's crying out to you, Hear my instruction. These are the words of wisdom. These are the words of life. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for the wisdom that You have given to us in Your Word, inscripturated. We thank You for the Word that is put on display in Your Word incarnate. Jesus Christ, we know He is your wisdom, the embodiment of your wisdom. His cross is the ultimate revelation of your wisdom. May we hear your voice. May we look to Christ and trust in Him, knowing that out of this fear, out of this faith, comes wisdom and maturity so that we can rule well and live skillfully and navigate life's obstacles and trials in a way that manifests joy and it brings you glory. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come to You in the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Great High Priest. Because of His sacrificial death, His resurrection, His ascension, His intercession for us, we are bold to come before You with our prayers and petitions and join in with His intercession on behalf of Your church and the world. We ask You to help us to pray by Your Spirit and to hear our prayers and make them effective for the sake of Your Son. Sovereign Lord, purify and perfect Your bride that You have redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Grant to Your church faithful and godly pastors and ministers. Cause Your Word to bear much fruit in the lives of Your people. Purge us of all heresy and error, all division and discord, and grant that we all might be one, even as You, our triune God, is one. We especially ask Your blessing to be upon this congregation for our elders and deacons, for our Sunday school teachers and choir leaders, for our musicians, for those who lead Bible studies and host and provide hospitality, for all those who work and serve in any way. Make us salt and light in this city, in this community. And help us not to grow weary in doing the good works to which You've called us. Almighty God, You are the Maker of the ends of the earth. And we thank You that You have given the nations to Your Son as His inheritance. We pray that You would raise up faithful servants to proclaim the good news of the Gospel at home and in distant lands. We ask You to strengthen the faith of our brothers and sisters who are oppressed and afflicted and persecuted for the testimony of the Gospel. Merciful Savior, 
Preserve our own nation in righteousness and true honor. We pray for our president and all officials whom you have granted authority. Give them wisdom to walk in the fear of the Lord, to establish justice and righteousness in our land for the good of your church. Forgive us of when we have strayed from your will as a people and grant us repentance to turn from our many sins. God of all comfort, we bring before you all who are afflicted and oppressed with poverty, sickness, unemployment, or any other trouble of body or mind. We especially ask you to comfort and give peace to those with chronic afflictions and illnesses for Claude Jones, for Ashley Hamblin, Michelle Stevenson, Bethany Laughlin, Kia Shoku, Steve and Heather Dornan, Ashton Motes and Abel Motes, for those who are battling cancer, for Brenda Jordan and Caleb Hamby and Gregory Morris and Suzanne Shelton. Provide gainful employment also, Lord, for those who are unemployed or underemployed, that we may all be able to share with those in need. We ask you to bless and sustain all expectant mothers, especially those in our congregation. Strengthen all parents to faithfully fulfill their vocations in raising their children in the fear of the Lord. Fortify our marriages against the lies and temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and grant that husbands and wives would honor, honor one another in humility. Especially, Lord, bless our aging parents and grandparents and those who are caring for them. Comfort them and help them to be faithful to the end that they might be an example for us. Be with Jewel Winstead and Blanche Laughlin, Frank Hampton and Elsie Weisenecker, Ruth Shepard, Mrs. Morrow, Sally Smith, Kathy Honeycutt's mom, and Stacy Douglas's grandfather, Pete Burr, as he ends the near as he nears the end of his life on this earth. And especially, Lord, we pray that you would be with all who mourn or grieve, all who are sad and discouraged, especially comfort the Shoku family as they mourn the loss of AK's sister. Be with them today as they gather for the service, as they are with their family, that they would be a testimony to your grace and to the hope that we have in Christ. All these things and whatever else you see that we need, grant us, O Father, for the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, who died and rose again and now lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, age after age. And now hear us as we pray as you have taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.